Welcome to Season 6 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. This season features eight sessions from COVID-19, the orthopedic recovery, a virtual summit powered by DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. It was streamed live on May 29th, 2020. The summit was a global conversation on the challenges of resuming patient care in the context of an uncertain future and an ongoing pandemic. Let's join over 1,000 registrants from around the world and the world-class speakers DocSF is known for on the DocSF virtual stage. Hello and welcome to DocSF. We are experiencing the orthopedic recovery. And in particular, we're so we're exploring a lot of different features of what is required to get us back into our, our practice and taking care of orthopedic, delivering orthopedic care. And so we started out earlier this morning taking a look at the virus and the taking a look at the workforce, the impacts. And now we're going into from the standpoint of we're using a lot more telemedicine, telehealth, digital tools. And to discuss what that looks like, I am so glad to have Anne Mont Johnson. She is the current CEO of ATA, uh, formerly known as the American Telemedicine Association. Um, she's an entrepreneur. Uh, she's a rebel. Uh, she's also, um, we will say right now, a futures forecaster. I think you're going to have a lot to say about that, Anne. And then Joe Kavadar. Joe, you are, first of all, what people may not recognize is because they're so they used to they know you as an author and an evangelist for using telehealth and telemedicine, but you actually are also a professor at Harvard in dermatology, right? Correct. All right. So thank you again for joining us today. Let's just dive right into it from the standpoint of since the pandemic, there has been an awful lot of change, and um, particularly what we've seen is the use and the exploration and the acceleration of using telemedicine. And why don't you start us off, give us a sense of, you're sitting in this really interesting position because you're seeing practitioners, all the different disciplines, all across the country, uh, urban centers, rural centers, and all of a sudden, whether you like it or not, because of the stay at home orders, the reduction in surgeries, the cancellation of all elective, we've had to do things a lot differently. What have you been hearing? So I think from the practitioner or the clinician's perspective, what we've heard is a huge uptake. So when I first joined the ATA, I think adoption engagement by clinicians was pretty low, maybe in the 10% range. And more recently in research that the AMA did, pre just pre-COVID, they looked mm -hmm. at adoption at about 28%, which was already a big improvement over prior years. But now what we're seeing anywhere from 60 to 90% adoption and use of telemedicine. And of course, that varies by specialty, but I think that the adoption rate has been pretty significant. What that's going to look like post-pandemic, I think remains to be seen. It's probably not going to be as low as 28%, but it's probably not going to be as high as 90% either. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of Pre-pandemic, what was the, uh, we'll say that usage rate, would you want to say usage as opposed to adoption? Um, because adoption sure. says that you're in that phase of, of bringing it on board. So what was the baseline use? So again, I think it was more in the 
5% range up to 28% just pre-pandemic. And uh, of course, that varies by specialty. Joe, you probably yes, have some observations on that too, right? Yeah, well, specifically just, orthopedic care. How, what was the, the usage rate there? So I, I don't know specifics on orthopedics. I know the more procedural uh, specialties have traditionally done less. Uh, okay. It makes sense because their core business is done okay. in the office. But I, I think many of them have learned during this crazy time that pre-ops can be done virtually, post-ops can be done virtually, physical therapy can be done virtually. So there's a lot of ways to do it. And, and what we ended up seeing is people rethinking how they use their brick and mortar in the office and what's more efficient to get done virtually and what's better to, to, to have make sure that the people coming in the office are, they really need to, et cetera. So that's kind of what's happening now, I think. Yeah. So, and from the standpoint of, um, oh, and Joe, I should say you are president-elect. So it's good to have the two of you here because <laughs> uh, you're under, um, you're overseeing and hearing what's happening right now. And Joe, you better be ready because it sounds like it's getting a lot busier. Um, right? Is that true? Oh, yeah, sure. I got, I've got my gloves on. Yeah, good to know. So, Ian, let's talk about how quickly this ramp up has been. And also, what were the things that people were learning? What very specifically did they see? And, and let's keep this, you know, again, to orthopedic care. What were some of the places the very first because everybody right now in orthopedic care, not everyone, I should say, the vast majority of orthopedic care, they have had to delay. And, mm -hmm. and they really haven't been having a full cycle of what care looks like, unless it was trauma or you know, some, some, some things that were needed to be addressed during COVID. But during this period of time, which problems or which part of the care journey have they seen using telemedicine, telehealth? What, what aspects is best, um, have they found the best results with? So I'll just say what I had heard, what I've heard, because I'm not a clinician and rely on Joe for part of this, but my impression is that, as Joe indicated, the post-operative checks have been pretty effective using virtual services. So just mm -hmm. as we're doing now, we're, we're talking to each other using a video element, video audio element, or synchronous communication, and that's been pretty effective. I will say that my, I've had personal experience with physical therapy. I fractured my shoulder pre-COVID and did all of my rehab with physical therapy virtually. And I would get a text every morning telling me what exercises to do. So that sort of management, ongoing management of mm -hmm. services, I think, has been effective. And there's been a huge uptake in that. How clinicians or orthopedists have been able to engage with patients, I suspect, has been the same with others who've been very procedurally based in terms of helping them manage their pain, helping them manage their condition as they wait to be able to have a procedure. And um, again, Joe, you're the clinician. Yeah, in the crowd. You're the clinician. What, no, what are I you think hearing? We've, we've pretty much uh, covered it on the procedural side, but Proceduralists do a lot of other things. Uh, they they're usually are quick to tell you that they're doctors. They're not just proceduralists, that they, they take care of patients. And orthopedics, of course, is not just uh, operations. There's, there's a lot of other things that go on. And uh, anything that doesn't require you to touch the patient to make a decision, whether it be a diagnostic or therapeutic decision, it can be done by telehealth. And there, people are learning that every day, real time as we speak. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, so that virtual 
being able to check in virtually. So one of the things that has been um, very specific to orthopedic care was the high rate of cancellations. So, mm -hmm. or, um, or, or rescheduling. So what have you, so clearly they had been cleared for their procedure. There was a condition going on. So we're talking a little bit more about the post-op and yes, you can do rehab. What are we doing in the interim from the standpoint of managing a situation that was, there was a surgical need? How are we using the digital tools, um, the virtual environment to address taking care of people while they are waiting? Again, I uh, not being an orthopedic surgeon, I, I can only uh, speculate, but but it if it involves a conversation about pain control, if it involves a conversation about range of motion, if it involves uh, something that's mitigating while we wait for for the OR time to come about, and of course, a lot of these are elective joint procedures that even though the person might be experiencing symptoms can can in fact wait. So it's really, I think about, coaching them through how to better manage their pain meds, how to better manage their uh, range of motion, et cetera, their, their exercise level while we, we wait for those operating rooms to clear. So it's really just being in touch with them. And I think one of the things that we've heard um, in prior sessions was the importance of building trust that mm -hmm. for many uh, patients now rethinking about their surgical schedule they are looking at this saying, um, what's my risk of picking up exactly. the, contracting the virus? So the, those, the, the oh, so yeah, go uh, sorry, but I, I would just say that this, the importance of building t trust is predicating, uh, predicated on having contact with your patients. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've heard pretty consistently from physician practices, not just orthopedists, but how pleasantly surprised patients have been with the outreach of the physician office. Yeah. And they were under the assumption that because their procedure was canceled, that everything was shut down and they would not have any contact. So that simple act of picking up the phone and checking in has been incredibly powerful and very, very impactful. So the value then of the video visit in that interim has been incredibly important as far as um, not only maintaining their level of uh, physical well-being, but I think it's done a lot for the psychological well-being. And we know definitely that you recover better when you are in a better state of mind. And certainly the anxiety on every level has gone mm -hmm. way up. So mm -hmm. the video visit, that contact does a lot to alleviate the psychological stress and manage anxiety and help them to be better prepared for their surgery. So one of the things that, um, you know, we talked about having low adoption rates. One of those reasons for the low adoption rates is we had a lot of rules and regulations around how you could conduct a video visit, what the financial model looked like, who was qualified for that, what plans were covering. This just, there was this rapid change in, is it, is it relaxation of the regulations? Was it a lack of enforcement? And you, you've been over there from the standpoint of thinking about government affairs and what those policies look like. So can you give us an understanding of what transpired that allowed us to move so rapidly into adopting virtual care? Well, there was a series of waivers that were issued, and that was really important in terms of attacking, if you will, what were barriers to getting people care where and when they needed it. And so the traditional barriers in telehealth for widespread adoption have been 
licensure, it's been reimbursement, it's been connectivity, particularly broadband. And basically, two of those issues were, um, over the course of the past several weeks, have been mitigated. And so that has really created a huge surge. I think, you know, it's safe to say that the 60 to 90% engagement or usage rate by physicians is driven in part because there's been a sense that they're going to get reimbursed. There's also some things, though, that we're concerned about. So, for example, the fact that there was um, enforcement discretion associated with HIPAA and the exchanges between clinicians and patients, we've been very concerned as an association and have taken a stand that said, just because you've adopted things quickly doesn't mean you should cut corners in quality. And so we're very concerned about that. We, we know our members are being very vigilant. Our members are very diverse. They include delivery systems, medical mm-hmm. groups, academic medical centers, as well as solution providers and payers. And so it's been really terrific to see the response of these folks and recognizing that they do have to pay attention even yeah. to privacy. Well, I was just going to say, there's, there's a lot of layers of privacy. There's the data privacy. There is during the interaction, the, the encounter, how do you make sure that that connection is secure? One of the other things that's come up that I hear across the board is that some of the challenges with the adoption is over on the patient side. Do they have access to the internet? Do they have the right type of tools? So as an association, oh, Joe, Joe let me uh, ask you to, to comment on that. On that experience side, um, the mm-hmm. very practical, what, what have we seen that was working and what were the things that got in the way of it being a successful um, encounter on both ends of using telehealth? Well, what's working is, is and it, it is extraordinary. I was worried uh, when we started this journey in mid-March that we were, were going to have a lot of hiccups. I mean, we, we brought thousand percent, several thousand percent increases in all the delivery systems. The, the one where I work, we did. 1,600 virtual encounters in February, and now we're doing 60,000 a week. Wow. Um, okay, that is just, a huge, you know, the magnitude, typ- the typical scale. Yeah. All, all over yeah. the country, and yet all I really hear is positivity from both patients and clinicians. So I think kudos to all of our IT support yeah. and just people's willingness to say, we're going to try something new, and we're, this, we're, we're in a pandemic. So I, I would say that, I, I would say as we come out of it and think about how we integrate telehealth into our physical practice, because the physical practice was never meant to go away. There's yeah. always going to be need for some patients to come into mm-hmm. to the office for certain things. We're talking about like having separate half days for telehealth. We're talking about having providers to conduct telehealth half days from their home so that we can use the brick and mortar differently. So that's a lot of what's going on now is how we think about those and honestly, other companies and other industries have done this a decade ago where you see companies like Uber and, and what have you, where they've thought about how to integrate a digital experience with a face-to-face experience. We, we need to go through that now in healthcare. As I was saying when before we came on, these used to be viewed as a curiosity by most doctors. Now they've experienced it. Their patients want it more. And so we've got to sort of come and say, all right, how do we clarify now what's best in office, how do we clarify how to integrate telehealth into these uh, practices, et cetera. So it's a very exciting time for that. 
and you, I, you had I, mentioned that, yeah, that we had this huge rush. And oh, I'm sorry, right. you were going to Well, I, I was just going to say, I think the other thing that's worked has been sort of the broad range of services that can be used. So audio only, for example, the fact mm-hmm. that people could just use their phone makes it incredibly easy for some cohorts, some populations who perhaps had not been versant with um, Zoom or whatever the technology may be that incorporated video and audio. So the phone only, I think, has been very beneficial Mm -hmm. in getting people to interact with their physicians. So I I think, you know, what, what I find interesting in this is that what really has changed with telehealth is that it was viewed as sort of a convenience factor Mm -hmm. and it was used primarily by young millennials, you know, younger folks who may not have a primary care physician. And it was just a matter of convenience. And now I think it's much more a matter of life and death for most people. And I think that that the other thing that's really worked well is the whole emergence of asynchronous methods of communicating. And the fact that you have companies that provided services free most Mm -hmm. of the time, in fact, all the time, I think, that enabled a consumer to go and look and answer very specific questions to determine whether or not they were likely to have the virus or and how do they self-care. And what these asynchronous tools enabled was a huge ability to scale and to be efficient in a way delivery systems would not have been able to do otherwise. We have companies who are members who've done 75,000 asynchronous visits a day. Just, just so, I mean, from the standpoint, are you referring to the chatbots where we're using symptom, symptom checkers? You're using that, but you're also okay. using interactive assessments or questionnaires. Mm-hmm. It's a guided conversation. Yeah. So it's not nearly as cold or fruitless as just a chatbot. And um I think it's been really remarkable how those have been inc- really used extensively yeah. by consumers and by clinicians. Well, I was just going to say, I've, one of the things that I found really interesting on how we're managing prevention of transmission, we want to cut down transmission, and transmission has been a lot within essential workers, many of whom are clinicians. So actually, the telehealth piece and the symptom checkers, the asynchronous is Let's check everybody before they come into work, before they come into surgery, before and after. So in the childcare centers, so so many of the hospitals have put on um, on site childcare centers or you know, uh, areas, but they are addressing the needs of the childcare needs. So whether it's that clinician, and we're seeing that more in practices where they're using the asynchronous to determine if somebody is you know uh, appropriate for coming into work or appropriate for coming in for an in-person visit. So they're using that chatbot before they even, it's it's a, it's a hybrid, it's not an either or, it's just integrated into the entire care journey. Experience. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and I think um, the reason why that's important is when at the ATA, what Joe and I talk about is that, you know, pre-pandemic, we had a shortage of clinicians. We did not have enough clinicians to take care of our aging population with multi-chronic conditions. And this is a problem we're facing worldwide. And so if we use technology to just replace a face-to-face visit, we will have sold the whole thing short. And what we're Mm -hmm. seeing now is the ability for technology and telehealth to help reimagine care and how care is delivered. And so I think if you approach it from that vantage point, 
you find it more as a way of augmenting and supporting your practice, your interaction with patients, as opposed to a threat. Yeah. Um, So from the standpoint of thinking very specifically, we were talking about some of the regulations. And I remember um, several of the press conferences where Seema Verma was there. And she very specifically said, um, whether it's your phone, FaceTime, Zoom, conference call, she really opened that up. And we had to at that, that moment. Uh, what are your concerns? You know, we had this flood of usage and people were experimenting it. The first thing we need to do is be safe on many levels. And I don't think we're going to, you know, we're going to see some, you know, pullback on that. As we get better at this, what do we need to be concerned about to be safe so that um, the regulations that are going to be coming in place how do we want to have regulations that allow us to be flexible and to explore new things and do it in a safe way? Have you um, got some thoughts about what we need to be thinking about and the language that we use as members of the orthopedic community to have the right things in place? Well, I'll take a shot yeah. and show, because we've worked very closely on this, which is the statement that I mentioned that the ATA uh-huh. came out with that said, even if you're moving fast, don't cut corners. So this so-called genie out of the bottle, yes, it means that there's a lot of different ways that people are operating, but clearly some are not appropriate. So FaceTime, for example, or Facebook Live, or TikTok. I don't even know how you use TikTok, but still. Um, <laughs> I've seen some so, pretty effective uh, um, orthopedic surgeons doing that with kids. Getting them to dance, you know, as part of oh, their, their therapy. Yeah. Um, and I think that we're, you know, and let's let's take a look at TikTok just for a second. Okay. Um, we're seeing the orthopedic community. Well, actually, the community that's taking care of the millennials and younger. That's who's on there. And so mm-hmm. from the standpoint of getting them to be more active, to understand better health behaviors, um, they that's actually, that's where that, that segment of our population, that's where they spend their time. So I think mm-hmm. figuring out how to do that. But yeah, I've seen several of the orthopedic surgeons with their recovery for young kids, they get them up dancing. And it's been, well, you know, what you see. They're meeting their customers where they are, where they which are. is really yeah. important. And I yeah. think that's the big change that happened here mm-hmm. is that we're meeting people where they are. Right. And it feels like the vast majority of the change has been over on the provider side, actually. Mm -hmm. We've actually, you know, customers have been customers, clients, patients, depending upon where you are in the care continuum, they have been using digital services for a lot of their life. And I think many of them have been interested and eager for their health care to transition over there as well. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, Joe, what's been, I mean, my experience as a clinician is my patients have been ready for this. Some of my colleagues have not. Yeah. What, have, what, have, what have you seen? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, in, in about 27 years of, of working in the space, I probably could count on one hand the number of patients who had some challenge. And, and other than I can't get the technology to work right, that's that's still something we need to get better at is making it so dead simple for all parties to connect. But other than that, once the experience is had, that you, you get when you get this uh, magical, I think it's magical, coalescence of access, quality, and convenience. Everyone's happy. Every, everyone wins. And um, I think that's really the way we have to view 
these interactions is when we can see those three things coming together at once and we know we've done a good job. You have to have quality. We just, and just mentioned that, and I would underscore that 10 times. We're not talking about cutting corners, but there is something to be said about being patient-centric, about the fact that patients can, can get care where they are when they need it. Uh, interestingly, one just quick example is during this time, and my colleagues uh, that I've talked to all say the same thing, the no-show rate for appointments has gone way down because you're catching people when the appointment is in their own home. It's you know simple thing, but but that used to drive people nuts, as you know, the no-show rate, and it's almost yeah. zero with virtual. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, um, the other thing, too, that uh, I was in another conference and we were talking about the number of cancellations was super high and then trying to get the rescheduled. So it was interesting that when one of the clinical staff, one of the nurses or the um, surgeons reached out to reschedule um, a procedure, that reschedule rate was up like around 80%. Whereas sure. if it had just been, let me send you an email. But when they actually use some type of an interaction, they were, um, those, those cancellations became, they were rescheduled. Yep. So um, we've got several questions. Um, one of them is uh, talking about telehealth as a platform on which we can hang the other tools through which we can optimize the use of our electronic health records. So you got anything to say about that, Joe? Well, integration with electronic records is, is one of the important things. I think, I think that question gets at workflow. And, and uh, mm-hmm. one of the things we used to cite as a barrier prior to the pandemic was workflow, that you couldn't expect clinicians to be on a platform like this and then have to change screens to look at the electronic record. This morning, I did virtual visits. I launched, I think, about six or seven of them right from Epic. We have integrated Zoom into Epic where I work, and it's a beautiful thing. Patients come into a waiting room from the patient portal. It feels very much like a, an experience that mimics being in, in, the, uh, in the office. So that integration is important. Um, and, and the other tools are things like devices, remote monitoring devices yeah. that can give you more information, um, things like that, that, that uh, we will continue to see proliferate because they're important for home testing is another one, lab tests that we can do at home. More mm-hmm. and more of those will come out and that will give us more and more opportunity to make these virtual visits more plentiful and more meaningful. Right. And, and have it be an integrated experience. So we're going to, I mean, one of the things that's really going to change and we need to think about this for um, our orthopedic patients is recovery. So if you've got somebody who has a comorbidity and um, they need to, they're elderly and they were in isolation, they're not going to be able to go directly to a skilled nursing facility or a rehab center. We're going to have to rely on remote monitoring and doing virtual visits. So thinking about that entire experience, how are we integrating wearables, remote monitoring and sensors within Zoom as well as the EMR and -hmm. and dashboards, you know, so that we know all these people that we are managing at home, how do we know who needs to be seen at what moment for what problem or, you know, just to, to check in on them so that it's not just, okay, Monday, here are all the people that we follow up with, that it's really driven by the clinical data. Are you, is that, are we seeing that? Is that something to get excited about? Well, I think it is. And, and I would say that the integration point is the electronic record. That's okay. where the, these all come together. That I don't think, I, I can't say Zoom, I, I don't know their technology roadmap, but I doubt that it involves connecting a lot of peripheral devices. Whereas 
we're getting that both of those integrations right now through Epic where I work. And so that indeed uh, I can be on a video call with you and then half the screen could show your home blood pressure readings all in the same experience. So we have another question. That, oh, go ahead. Go sorry. Ahead. I would just, I would just add to that, that the whole notion of remote monitoring, the idea of using data to flag a situation before it gets really bad has something that we've seen incredible advances in terms of remote monitoring and, you know, being able to tag a patient for a possible problem before it even surfaces has been a real advent of yeah. the use of AI and machine learning and yeah. integrating that in digital devices. So there's no reason why it's not going to continue to explode. Well, that's one of the things that you had mentioned. I've heard you speak about this, hand that... Too often times when we think about telehealth or telemedicine, we're thinking about this synchronous face-to-face -face interaction like what we're having right here. But it mm -hmm. is a much more expanded um, experience and it is a, an ability for us to actually better understand a, a health problem and mm -hmm. an illness journey. And so mm -hmm. from that data, when we're able to actually mine that and using AI and machine learning, it actually tells us, actually, this is the person who's at risk. And mm -hmm. so it, it actually improves our care, our learning around all of that. I think you've mentioned quite a bit about how, you know, that we think about it as the interaction, but you're really thinking about it on the back end is how we're collecting data to actually deliver better care. Have you, have you got some examples that you've seen that you wanted to encourage us to pursue more aggressively? Well, I, I just think the whole idea of people aging in place or aging home and home is mm -hmm. one that really lends itself to that sort of passive monitoring. I always love the expression or the description of the beauty of an Amazon Kindle is that you order it online, it shows up at your house, you turn it on, and it works. And the bottom line of that is if you want someone to do something, don't make them do it. And so that is really the power of remote monitoring. And that's why it's so interesting to see Companies like Best Buy get into healthcare in a big way, starting with their acquisition of Great Call in December 2018. So you think about, you know, your parents, your elderly parents at home, and one of them has procedure, and you want to make sure that they're okay, you're going to have Geek Squad go out to their house and outfit it for remote monitoring, just, and very passive, but you know they're going to be watched in a way that yeah. they weren't before. That's a, okay. It is dramatic. It is shifting. I mean, Joe, you had mentioned that the what you were talking about and evangelizing two months ago, some of the presentations that you've looked at, they've just, they're, they're dinosaurs at this point. They're not relevant. Yeah. It seems so very quaint to go back and look at slides that I presented <laughs> at the end of January. It's really amazing. Yeah. And what we're, um, we're really focused on now is, is that future experience where, and I keep mentioning companies like Uber, may, maybe that's too abstract for people, but there are so many examples in your non-healthcare world where you have an integrated in-person digital experience and you don't think too much about it. And that's where we have to head. We have to make, mm -hmm. we have to present ourselves to our patients as digital organizations. Mm -hmm. We have to have them properly cared for we don't we, we, we look forward to the day when someone shows up at the offices, why do I why did I need to be here for this? <laughs> right? And and, yeah, could and we? you know and, and could, as could opposed to somebody, yeah. uh -huh. everyone who shows up saying, Well, by golly, I better come for that appointment because I've been chosen to come in. That means something really special has to happen here that's in as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, let's talk for five minutes about your last lab test and send you on your way. Mm -hmm.
So one of the other questions, orthopedic surgeons are heavily reliant on radiographs, MRI and imaging, and less and less on the physical exam. So are there any technologies that are gonna have, that are forced to access the imaging at the time of the telemedicine visit? Um, are these technologies, are they gonna allow our patients imaging modalities in, in a compliant way during COVID? So I'll take a crack at that. It, that's a very futuristic and it's a great question. And I, I don't know of any home x-ray devices that, that are on the on the uh, horizon. I do know that 10 years ago, we, we were talking about portable ultrasound and that's now a thing. So these things that sound a little bit uh, Jetson-esque, uh, give it 10 years and you'll start to see it. In the meantime, again, the answer to that question in, in the current day, state is the integration of this into the electronic record. So yeah, the patient has to go to a imaging center to get an image done. But then when you uh, have your conversation with them virtually, you can access that and, and go over it with them. And, and, and our patients increasingly can in, in access at least the reports in our patient portal, if not the actual image. And then um, another piece that's going to be so vital to um, care is home testing. Yeah. Who's you know, if we've got somebody that's scheduled for surgery, we need to figure out if they are actively carrying virus. You know, are they are they somebody who is? Are, are we going to be actually able to deliver the surgery? If so, what is the frequency of which they're going to be tested? And so where does that testing get done? So there's so many questions as far as getting somebody ready on the preoperative on that schedule. Any thoughts about how we're gonna use a telemedicine environment to achieve that goal? I just think that the things that we try to envision now that seem too space age are just around the corner and somebody's seeing it as a problem that they can solve. So, you know, that's the, why we love our entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But Joe, you probably have more specific. Well, I just, I would say, despite the fact that the, it's unfortunate on every level, Theranos set us way back and, and Theranos became sort of people saying, well, that can't be done. As a matter of fact, I know of several companies that can take not, not uh, a, the tiny amount of blood, but a couple of drops of blood and do all kinds of amazing things with it. And and so that's, again, as Ann said, that is that is out of, uh, literally around the corner. It's in FDA clearance now and will be in the market in the next year or two. So lots and lots of things are moving into the home. There are devices that you can take your temperature, look in your throat, look in your ear. There's all kinds of things that will enhance our ability to make a telemedicine visit uh, a very robust interaction with our patients and obviate the need to travel. Right. There's a Israeli company that you can actually, in this sort of video interaction, you can, they can evaluate your respiratory rate, um, your pulsicity. It's just phenomenal what can be done. And is that, that Tidal Care that you're talking about? No, this is Benai. 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 Okay. Uh, but Tidal Care has the devices that, again, are being broadly distributed through organizations like Oxner Health, where you can look in the ear of a kid or the throat and determine with incredible accuracy whether or not they need to be seen or they should just jump to antibiotics. Well, we need to wrap things up. So I think um, what would be what I'd love to have you provide is um, have you got some like two or three pieces of advice for the orthopedic community from the standpoint of thinking about, we've made some gains here. Um, we are still learning. Um, what would you, in these, in, 
you know, it's, it's interesting. I was going to say in the upcoming months, but things are moving so fast. It's like in the upcoming, upcoming weeks. Days, weeks yeah, yeah, really in the, in the days and weeks. So as surgeries are opening, being scheduled, and we are in that recovery and more and more states are removing um, their stay-at-home orders, and we are going to see more of this. What would be a couple of things that you would say, these are the these are the core things that you need to pay attention to now in order to set this up and be successful and safe? Uh, I'll start. I'll say workflow is paramount. In other words, just re rethink and re-question every single thing that you have on your schedule. Does that person need to come in? Uh, and think hard about it because the, the, the answer used to be yes. But it isn't always yes. And then that you can really start to then juggle your brick and mortar. Think about how you use your non-clinical spaces, how you use your interactions with or your telehealth interactions and to create a really knit together experience. That's going to be the next challenge. So every question should start with how might we? Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Okay. And I would just add to that to be incredibly proactive as you engage with your patients. I mean, virtual is not for everyone. Just as it isn't for all physicians, it's not for all patients. And then the other advice I'd have is just to stay on top of the coding and the reimbursement because I have heard so many stories of how challenging this is. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you miscode, it can get construed as fraud, and that's not what anybody wants. And so it's really important to stay on top of that. We have some resources that we've posted on our website, americantelemed.org. And we just know that this is really, really important for the medical community. Yeah. And that has been one of the major concerns. And so mm -hmm. you guys are a great resource to help everybody with that. With that, I will just say thank you so much for joining us. And we've got all of your links that are available. So we encourage people to reach out to you. It's, it's like you said, it is amazing all of the partners who are coming together to really help us think about how we do this um, well, safely, and I would hope with joy and excitement because it is mm -hmm. really fun. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we forget that part. We're just talking about transaction. Let's just get this done. But this is a lot of fun. So mm -hmm. I appreciate your enthusiasm. And um, we'll look forward to checking in. Uh, let's see. Maybe we should check in next month. Given the pace that we're <laughs> okay. going at. Yeah. It will be a okay. different interview well. for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Stay Thank well. you. Your hands washed. And uh, <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. We aim to provide our global audience with practical and actionable knowledge for modernizing the way they deliver care to the orthopedic patient. If you like the podcast, please rate us on your favorite player or tell a friend. It only takes a minute and it makes a huge difference to us. Many thanks to our friends at Outcomes Rocket, the Health Podcast Network, and our producer, Dr. Sheila Toro, for their work on this season. Be well, stay safe. See you next time on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.